Tonight I want to speak about Kaya Gata Sati, mindfulness immersed in body. Um, and this obviously refers back to the first Satipatthana, the um, Kaya Anupasana, the tracking of body. Uh, this um, is basically about the relationship with the body that we, we have as meditators, which I've come to realise is extremely important. Um, actually, I realised it was important from the beginning. My f- the first meditation retreat I went to was in Sri Lanka in 77, sometime around then. And um, it was at a place outside Colombo, I forget, I forget the name. Uh, and we, um, we had these tiny little concrete cells to live in and a little bit of veranda. And the bed was a, a, a cane mat on the concrete floor. Part of the concrete floor was raised up a bit. They had a cane mat. And um, that was pretty much it. Uh, and we were supposed to sit there for hours every day. I noticed a lot of people cheated and leaned against a wall. <laughs> In fact, at about if you from from uh, the the wall was concrete, and there was this black stain along <laughs> at about the head height. If you leaned against it, <laughs> um, so I did, of course, and I had a little cushion. And I survived two weeks, and my knees hurt for two weeks thereafter. Mm-hmm. And I spent most of the time wrestling and struggling with the body, and realised I had to do take up yoga and get massaged, etc., etc. Years later, um, I was at um, Upandita's place in Rangoon, Pandita Rama, uh, and. The interpreter was the relatively junior side or named Vivekananda. And the teacher, who, the, the person who was giving the interviews was not Upandita, but one of his underlings. And he was, he, he'd have to be in the running for the worst meditation teacher I've ever come across. He was just dreadful. He had no interest whatsoever in what was going on. Um, I, don't, I doubt that he really paid much attention to what anybody was saying to him, and he just kind of tossed off the, whatever standard response came to mind at the time. So with me, I would uh, go to interview, and if something interesting was happening, and I had been doing the practice long enough to figure out what was interesting and what was not, then after the interviews, I'd go and see... Vivekananda, go to his hut and we'd sit down and I'd say, okay, what was that all about? And we have a discussion, we have a talk. And he would be pulling down books and we'd be reading them and comparing notes and figuring it out. And it was, it was, it was a very interesting process. <clears throat> but in the course of this, one, one day I was complaining to him, as was my want, um, about uh, my 
uh, one of my major obsessions when I meditate, which is I haven't got enough samadhi. My concentration is not good enough. So I was complaining about this. And he said, um, there is nothing wrong with your samadhi. You would not be seeing the things you are seeing if you did not have samadhi. It's not samadhi you lack, it's pasadi. It's what? Pasadi. And so I said what Donald's about to say. <laughs> What's pasadi? What's pasadi? <laughs> and of course it's tranquility. It's one of the factors of awakening. You have, um, I think, does it come third? Is it number three? Four. Four? Four. Four. Uh, yeah, but it would be four. And it's just next to samadhi, just next to concentration. And uh, Pasadi Samadhi, uh, Samadhi, it's uh, interesting, it's one of these pairs of terms that you come across in the Buddha's teaching where there's a body-mind connection built into them. That is, one term is predominantly physical, but also influences mind, and the other term is predominantly mind, but also influences body. Now, in this case, uh, Pasadi, tranquility, is predominantly physical, but it influences the mind, while samadhi, concentration, is predominantly mental, but it influences the body. In other words, my body was agitated. I was carrying chronic tension within the body, and the body was always tight. And if the body is agitated, it's quite difficult for the mind to settle. Not impossible. And people do it. But it's like running with a handicap. Um, so one way into samadhi, concentration, is via the body. Calm the body down, bring ease to the body, and then concentration will develop. Um, on the other hand, if the body is agitated, it will be difficult to calm the mind. So mind-body relationship. And the, uh, the body is important as part of the instrument with which we practice meditation. Um, when we begin intensive meditation practice, uh, it's been my observation that it's not just me. A lot of people spend a great deal of energy fighting their bodies, trying to make it do what they think it's supposed to do. Um, so, for example, to sit in a, in a particular approved posture. Uh, I mentioned that I s uh, spent a number of years practising Zen, and my introduction to it came about, oddly enough, um, in a kind of half-hearted attempt to make a connection with Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, because this, I, was, I was, had returned from my first trip to India, late 77, um, looking for an opportunity to continue meditation practice in Sydney, but also needing yoga, massage, etc. And there was an advertisement for a public talk to be given by a visiting Tibetan Lama 
at a hall that was just within walking distance of my house. So I went there. I think it was Lama Zopa. He would have been very young in those days. And so he, there was this young Lama on the stage. There was a good crowd turned up. And the young Lama had these gorgeous robes. And he sat down and he gave one of the most boring Dharma talks I've ever heard. <laughs> so you see, definitely your love is over. <laughs> Why so boring? Boring. Boring. <laughs> and um, they, at the, but at the end of it, they, they sat around this little pamphlet advertising a weekend retreat with this teacher in a house or a centre in the, in the upper North Shore. So I went along. Weekend of meditation, very good. And went through this weekend, didn't connect with the teacher. But I was sitting in this hall and I had this really crappy little cushion and I was trying to sit properly. And I happened to glance to my right and there beside me was this magnificent Rolls Royce of a cushion. <laughs> and I looked at this cushion and I thought, I've got to get a cushion like that. <laughs> and then I looked at the, the guy sitting on it and he had perfect full lotus and a totally straight back and a perfect mudra. And I looked at him and I thought, I've got to get a posture like that. <laughs> and <laughs> can you get it at the same store? <laughs> and uh, I, I was too, too shy to actually go up and say hello to this fellow because he obviously knew what he was doing. But after that, Retreat. The only thing I, I put my name down on a mailing list, and the only thing that ever came was an advertis- advertisement for a yoga course, yoga class that was run by a guy called John Cooper. So I went along, and at the, in the class, doing magnificent postures, was this same bloke who had that cushion. <laughs> so I knew I had to pounce on him because my, my enlightenment depended upon it <laughs> and as it happened at the end of the class he made an announcement and said that he was running a, a little Zen group in Sydney and inviting people to come along and this was the Sydney Zen group and so I joined up and the, the guy was Lee Davidson who currently lives in, in the north coast and is the founder of Australian Zen um, so I I went along to Zen and I was attracted to it because they had the best cushions. <laughs> they only sat for 25 minutes. No, 30 minutes, actually. We sat for 30 minutes and then when Aiken Roshi came out, he reduced it to 25 and the Dharma has been declining ever since. <laughs> but it only had to sit for 30 minutes and the instructions were to follow the breathing down here, which was much better than what I was doing, which was up here. And I could sit facing a wall with, as I explained the other night, the light blasting into my eyes and, and so I could keep awake. So I got into Zen. And I used to read these Zen books and there were these uh, little kind of Zen for beginners books coming out of Japan. And they always talk about posture and the importance of posture. Sit like Buddha and you will become Buddha. And they always have photographs of these good-looking young Japanese blokes with shaved heads, black robes, demonstrating perfect posture. So, of course, I think the job is to sit like them. And so that's what I tried to do. And so, years of struggle. And the struggle itself 
of course, gets in the way of the meditation. But the other weird thing is that the posture that I'm struggling to attain is nothing more than a product of my imagination. It exists only in this mental image that I have of it. I'm already alienated from the body. And it's like I'm residing outside the body and from there I'm trying to make the body fit my image of what it's supposed to look like from the outside. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's a completely alienated relationship. Mm -hmm. But I was so busy struggling to get the right posture that I never noticed. Now at some point it occurred to me, how would it be How would it change the sitting, the experience of sitting, if I abandoned this struggle and yet found ease in the posture? Um, At the very least, it would improve samadhi, concentration. At the very least, it would do that. Um, But it would also assist vipassana, insight, because... Insight requires a subtlety and precision of awareness. And if if my relationship to the practice is so gross that what I'm trying to do is wrestle with the body to keep it still over the approved period of time, it's difficult for subtlety and precision to arise. Again, it's not impossible. You know, with enough struggle, it can be done slowly, painstakingly slowly. But it's not a very efficient way to do it. So the simple fact which we tend to lose sight of is that we are bodies. That's what we are. Um, But we need to be reminded of this from time to time because our minds have the capacity to separate us from our bodies. And this is something about the human mind and perhaps no other species has this. I don't know. We may be the only one. But certainly in our species, our minds have the capacity to separate us almost entirely from our bodies. And in the ordinary everyday experience of this, our mind manages to persuade us that our drives, our desires, our fears, our hatreds, our anxieties, etc., are actually more real than the body. Uh, Now, from the, the Buddha's point of view, each of us is a sentient body. He calls it sat vijnana kaya. Kaya is body, vijnana is awareness, or consciousness, and sat means with. So a body with awareness, an aware body, a sentient body. Um, Now you notice that he's saying our fundamental nature is not some esoteric mind state or spirit or whatever. Our fundamental nature is this, physical, the body. Um, But the body is sentient and it knows it is aware of a world external to itself which appears to be inhabited by other sentient bodies 
Um, so it's shared by others. And there's another world which is internal, which is known only to ourselves. And we call this the mind, or the Buddha would call it the citta. Now this awareness of the sentient body, as we mentioned before, is located. It has location. It's located here. Here. I am aware of this room. From where? Here. Where are my thoughts happening? Well, they're not happening over there. They're happening here, somehow. Even if I can't pinpoint the location, still, I have this sense that it's here. Um, now, the power of the, of the inner world, of chitta, of the mind, um, enables us to escape from this sense of being located here. Have you ever had the experience of sitting in a meditation hall, let's say this one, being lost in imagination and sense and thinking yourself to be somewhere else? Has that ever happened? Or has it only happened to me? Have you ever had the experience of being lost in thought and thinking yourself to be in the past or in the future? Yes. Rather than now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Constantly. Constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, when you consider this, this is seriously weird. <laughs> and it, Not if you've done it long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Not if you're used to it. <laughs> But it shows us how powerful the mind is in its capacity to separate us from the body. So I can project myself into past or future and it's more real to me than this. The classic example in meditation retreats is when, you, when we first arrive and the past, the world that we just left, is actually more real to us than here. Then we go through a period of time when we're actually here and then once the mind starts to think hey wait a minute, it's coming to the end whammo the post-retreat world is more real than here <laughs> it's so routine we don't notice it but it is seriously strange and similarly situations other than here somewhere else that, that are in the present are more real than, than this. Now, these worlds are purely conceptual. They're just made up of concept. And it's within these conceptual worlds that I create an identity. I, I create myself in these worlds. And perhaps that's the only place that I can create an identity. Maybe that's why I need these worlds. Now, the, the self, the identity that I create, um, can never actually escape its physicality. It's always here. Even if it doesn't want to be, it still is. It's in this body. 
even though it would much prefer another body. It makes no difference. Here it is. It's inescapable. And yet, so everything happens here. And yet we live as if we are separated from here. So let's say I'm doing walking meditation. If I'm, I'm walking up and down a path, if I'm fully engaged with the practice, the he-ness of this experience is quite clear. It's quite clear to me that this is happening here. But when I get lost in fantasy, while objectively I'm still here, people can see me, the felt sense of the here-ness of the experience is completely lost. Uh, and then I come back to here, I drop the, the world of fantasy, and I'm here again. So I find myself, I'm here, and then I'm somewhere else, but then I'm here again, but then I escape somewhere else. You get we get the same thing with emotion. We talked about emotion. When I'm sensitive to the feeling tone of the body, I find my emotion re, um, resides here as physicality, as body. Uh, basically as a set of physical sensations that might, might be quite disturbed, and they're here. The mind from these sensations creates a conceptual world um, so the body is disturbed the mind has to make sense of it so it interprets it as oh this is a certain emotion I'm grumpy, I'm upset and then the mind in that conceptual world has to find reasons for being grumpy there must be something happening in the conceptual world that's causing me to be grumpy. So the mind will go through the files, pick out the appropriate one, make that situation real, more real than this, and this confirms the disturbed sensation and feeds them, and the sensations feed the emotion and the whole thing goes on. And the more I get lost in the emotion, the more my sense of reality drops away from this into this imagined conceptual world. Now this world may be located in the past, it may be located in the future, it may be located in the present, but away from me, um, triggered by, for example, other meditators. But the sense of the here-ness is gone. When I'm... Um, intimate with the body it's quite clear to me that this entire drama is occurring here and as when that perception is clear I cannot sustain the emotion because I cannot sustain it without this imagined world being more real than this The, the mind is remarkably anxious to get away from the body. Um, sometimes because the physical world is painful. The body hurts. Everybody hurts. Um, 
sometimes you have the, just the normal physical pain of the body, but you can also have pain in the body which is actually created by the world of concepts. So I think of something which is emotionally painful and I feel it in the body. The body then hurts. So of course I want to send the awareness away perhaps to argue with that in, with that conceptual world but again it's getting getting out from the body as much as possible so it's not it's it's no wonder um, that we have a problematic relationship with the body um, and we we get um, cut off from it we become strangers to our own body and we lose our sense of the language of the body we don't listen to it we can't hear it and we can't understand what it's saying so most of the time we're in a world of language of concept so what we normally call language the blah 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 and, th and language in this sense takes us into the world of concepts the, the body also has a language but its language is non-conceptual and it's restricted entirely to sensations the body speaks in sensation that's how it communicates um, we tend to be deaf to this language uh, we tend um, not to hear it. We receive messages from the body only when these messages are very loud and very crude, such as, for example, oh, that hurts. Or when we get sick, when we drive the body so much because we're so caught up in this world of concept that we push the body beyond its limit and we get sick. It's interesting how, how many people when they go on holiday, they probably fall, fall ill. Uh, and the body doubtlessly has been complaining for some considerable time, but completely, just totally oblivious to it. Because the world of concept overrides it. No, I have to do this. Uh, but when, that's, when the pressure is released, then the body shouts out its message. And the message is, comes in the form of sickness. So the body is always communicating, but it can only communicate in sensation. On the basis of the sensations, we create perceptions. And on the basis of the perceptions, we then create thoughts, and so on. These perceptions are often false. The sensations are always true. <coughs> The body never lies. The mind lies all the time. But the body never lies. Everything that it says is true. Although the perceptions and thoughts, the concepts that we create about that language may well be false. But the sensations themselves are always true. This is one reason why in our practice we are urged to slow down. Because if we slow down, we have the opportunity to tune into these sensations. We're in the habit of blocking them out. 
and speed is one way that we do it. And it's not just speed in itself, it's the speed which is triggered by the attempt to make real an image of the future. Now, this can be quite mundane. So let's say there's a particularly nice lunch and mindful of the body, I scoop up a, a spoonful of this particularly nice lunch and I have an image of the satisfaction of eating it and so the movement from here to here is as fast as I can manage it without actually hurling the food across the dining hall <laughs> which would be embarrassing now basically what's going on is I've got an image of what I want within the body the body is somewhere else so I just have to move it as fast as possible from there to here Another example, if you're, if you're doing a strong stretch in the morning and you get the signal, okay, enough, how quickly do you get out, do you back out of it? And why do you move that quickly? Isn't it because the mind rushes to the image, this is over, so the body should no longer be like this, now it's supposed to be like that, and it just goes bang, there, as fast as possible. And in that movement, what's real is not the body. In other words, not the sensations, but the mental image. And the body is racing to catch up with this. But we're not actually listening to the body, we're listening to the, to the image, to the concept. So that's why we keep saying... When we go into a stretch and when we come out of a stretch, move slowly to maximise the sensations, to listen to what the body is saying about this whole thing. Uh, similarly, the big mistake that we make when we're doing these stretches is to push too hard. Now, I'm pushing too hard. In other words, I'm trying to get the body from here to here. That movement... What's the language I'm listening to? It's the concept. The body's supposed to be there, so bloody well go there. And we'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs> Scrunch. But if we're actually listening to the sensation, there's no way we're going to injure ourselves. Because the message will be loud and clear, stop here. This is far enough. Thank you very much. So the whole business about slowing down is very largely to give us the opportunity to start to tune into the language of the body, which is the language of direct sensation. When we do this, one thing we discover is the tension that we hold in the body. When the mind senses danger the body defends itself. And it defends itself by tightening, ready to ward off an attack or to launch into one. And um, so tension always arises as a defence mechanism to a perceived threat, to a perception created by the mind.
Now, concept tends to last. So I have a concept of something, and that concept can last for a long time. I can make up my mind about something, and ten years later I have exactly the same opinion. Um, so the mind perceives a threat and then can believe that this threat remains even when it's actually over but it be, the mind can be convinced that there's still a threat this message is sent to the body and so the body continues to hold the tension and these patterns of tension become habitual they drop beneath awareness and we don't notice them anymore except when we try to move the body and we discover that it won't move in the way that we wanted to because it's, suddenly it stops I can't go any further um, sometimes we sense these patterns of tension sometimes they're, they're evident we feel tightness in the shoulders for example sometimes we experience them as areas of absence the complete absence of sensation in other words the language here has been completely shut out there's no sensation in this part of the body at all and here I suspect is, is the deeper tension uh, sometimes if you're doing a stretch you start to move into an area and the body is, and it's not necessarily painful but you get this message from the body don't go there, back off it's not necessarily a sensation the sensation is still beneath awareness but the message that it's sending is so strong that even the mind can start to pick it up so we have these habits of tension that, that are in the muscle and the, and, and, and the fascia and these this, these patterns of habitual tension create my sense of my body my body that has these limitations my body that can't sit comfortably and they condition the sense of reality the sense of what's possible and what's not possible and all of this gets taken over by the world of concept and it becomes absolutely fixed and these concepts feed the body and the body um, tenses because that's what it's told to do and so it's we, we find ourselves locked in and this is the body that we struggle with when we try to do meditation practice and of course this is why we do the body work as part of the meditation now if you're inclined to orthodoxy you might be tempted to ask did the Buddha and his students do body work and if you're a learned scholar in these matters you might say I've studied the suttas and I can find no reference to body work in there so why are you doing it this is heresy extending his arm and nose extends his arm it's certainly being mindful of the body, but is it doing body work as such? You could argue it is. You certainly let's get a good lawyer and <laughs> make up a case. 
Oh yeah. 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 And yeah, and this is actually very, very physical. Yeah, extremely so. Yeah, and this is what we're what, uh, coming to here. Um, there's no, there's certainly no explicit reference to bodywork in the, in the suttas that I've come across, but. Um, so, the, the, strictly speaking, the answer is we don't know if the Buddha and his students did bodywork or not, and we cannot know. But we've got to have to consider the, the context. First of all, trans, uh, traditions do not transmit the blindingly obvious. This is the, the first thing. If we're looking back into the past, trying to work out what's going what's going on. Um, back in the um, Johnny Howard days, we had the history wars. And during that time, I, I remember reading a, a book on this by, I think, Alastair McIntyre, I'm not sure. No, I can't know, I got the right name wrong. Stuart. Anyway, I've forgotten the name. But there was a quote from the famous Australian historian who wrote Tyranny of Distance, Geoffrey Blaney. And he made the comment that if you are a historian, your job is to go back to the records left by people in the past and from those records work out what was going on for them in that world. And he said there is of course one thing that they that is never ever mentioned in historical records and that is precisely what to the that which for these people was blindingly obvious. When when we make a record, do we record the obvious? No. Why would we? It's obvious. So we, we don't make a record of it. So in later times, when people are trying to work out what, what we were experiencing, what they will not have a record of is what we think is completely obvious. So the fact that the records don't mention certain things doesn't mean that they weren't there they could mean that it's so obvious that there's no need to talk about them Was yoga being done at that time? Yeah, well there's no reason to suppose it wasn't mm -hmm. the word was used the kinds of practices that which we which we associate with yoga was being were being performed mm -hmm. so there's every reason to suppose that mm -hmm. there would have been a yoga tradition mm -hmm. there at the time the other thing, of course, is that the people of that time and place were far more physically relaxed, supple and robust than we are. Enormously so. So they come from a non-mechanistic agricultural society where there are almost no, no machines. Everything is powered by human or animal muscle. They live on the floor without furniture. Um, in the case of the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis, as was, um, Jane said, they're used to walking long distances most days of their lives, in bare feet, normally, uh, in a very relaxed manner. So these are people who are both extremely fit in our sense of the word, but also much more in their bodies than we are. The, the relationship to the body 
would have been completely different from ours. Their bodies would have been much more open and relaxed than ours, and body awareness would have come much more easily and readily to them than it does for us. Because in contrast, you think about the way we treat our bodies. Well, the body adapts to whatever posture it's um, forced to undergo over a period of time. And our um, basic posture of the body uh, uh, of the body is sitting in a chair, and if we're at work, hunched over, staring at a screen which is very close to us, mm. maintaining that really artificial, out of balance posture for hours every day, and all the way through, it's associated with stress. In other words, threat. I'm at work. I've got to do this. Not much time. I have to be productive. My, my review is coming up in a couple of months' time. And if I'm not productive, they'll sack me. And we cultivate... This is what we're telling our bodies for years, even decades at a time. So it's pretty obvious. I come to a meditation retreat... I sit down on the floor, and what do I discover? I'm incredibly stiff, and it hurts. It's hardly surprising. Plus, the world that we live in, our minds would be spinning around a lot faster than the minds of people in simple village, pre-literate cultures. And of course, in mature capitalism, we live in a society in which social isolation and the competition between individuals is endemic. So we have a completely different relationship to the body. We bring this completely different relationship to the body with us when we start doing meditation practice and it is a long way from being helpful as well as totally different from the Buddha and his students. Just um, if we look at how the body was related to back in those days i just like to refer to one story that we find in Chivara Sutta, the robe. And this is about um, the Buddha's disciple Maha Kasapa, um, or Big Kasapa. Maha could be translated as Big, so Big Kasapa. Maybe he was a big guy. Um, in Sanskrit, Maha Kashyapa. He was a senior disciple of the Buddha, and he was well known as an ascetic. He was one of the major ascetics. He lived in the forest. He devoted himself to practice. He avoided the kinds of social entanglements that were part of the Buddha's life and a part of any monk's or nun's life who, who um, spent time with lay people. He had a reputation as a very fierce disciplinarian. There's these wonderful stories about him absolutely putting the boot into Venerable Ananda for being slack. Um, and in the tradition, he's come to represent tough macho dharma. He was a bloke's bloke when it came to the dharma. Uh, he's also, the Zen tradition regarded as, regard him as the first ancestral teacher. In the Zen tradition, he was the one who received the transmission, the mind-to-mind transmission from the Buddha. So in 
Chivara um, Sutta, the robe, um, Big Kasapa is an old man and he's recounting his memories of his first encounter with the Buddha. Now before he ordained, Kasapa was a wealthy farmer who one day during the harvest he was supervising the workers in the field and he suddenly saw that in the process of harvesting the crop innumerable small creatures were being killed and he was overcome by remorse and horror at this and decided he had to renounce the world which was a bit of a worry uh, because he was married and the marriage was the couple were very fond of each other so he went home you know wondering how is this going to pan out but as it happened his wife was, who was at home she was supervising the winnowing of the grain and she had the same realisation and with it the same determination to renounce the world and she was worried about how she was going to explain it to her husband so when they met and they discovered that they were on the same page they were very pleased and they ordained themselves and they walked off together uh, and at some point they came to a, a crossroads and Kasapa turned to his wife and he said look we're, we're, we're ascetics now it's inappropriate for a man to be walking with a woman so we should go in separate directions and so she said that's a very good idea and they separated and um, Kasapa heads off in search of enlightenment now probably some of you would want to know what happened to his wife. Uh, actually, second in this case. Her name was Bada Kapilani, and she went to Savati, uh, which is the capital of the kingdom of Kosala, and she went to Jetavana Monastery, which was the Buddha's headquarters, and she hung out there and listened to the teachings. But at the, this is quite early on, and there were no bhikkhunis in those days and so she actually joined a, a local nunnery of non-Buddhist female ascetics because there were nuns in other traditions at the time um, after five years uh, the Bhikkhuni order was created and she was able to ordain as a Bhikkhuni um, and not long afterwards she became fully awakened and thereafter she specialised in the education of younger bhikkhunis, in particularly in um, Vinaya, or Vinaya, the monastic discipline. Um, and the Buddha praised her as foremost among the bhikkhunis in her, in her ability to remember previous lives. So presumably her mindfulness was pretty powerful <laughs> to be able to do that. So she was okay. Uh, Kasapa, on the other hand, he's walking down the road and he meets the Buddha. Uh, actually, he doesn't quite meet him. The Buddha's coming down the road and he decides it's time to sit down for a bit. So he leaves the road and he's sitting underneath a tree, meditating. And Kasapa comes down the opposite way and sees this ascetic sitting under a tree and he immediately knows, this is my teacher. So he goes across and they have this encounter. And the Buddha promptly recognises him as this is a good quality student so they they get together and make a connection and the Buddha gives him three practices that will define him 
the rest of his life. Um, first is all about the practice of ethics, sila. The second is his devotion to the study of Dharma. But it's the third one that I want to focus on here. The Buddha says, Kasapa, you should train yourself in this way. I will not abandon mindfulness immersed in body associated with joy. So, I will not abandon, abandon mindfulness immersed in body associated with joy. Um, this can be... The, the, what the instruction here is, first of all, always be mindful of body, number one. But secondly, to do it in such a way that the pleasure of it is evident. Yeah? Um, when I've seen statues of Ananda, he looks quite calm and serene, but every time I've seen a statue of my husband, he's grimacing. It's like really big. Grimace. Is he grimacing or smiling? Oh, it's a grimace for sure. I was really struck by it. I went to Dharma Pung. To where? In China. I went oh, yeah. somewhere yeah. in China. And mm. um, he was always there and he really looked um, grumpy. It was really noticeable. Yeah, he's, he, was a grimace. yeah he's the fierce old forest ascetic. He's the tough guy. But apparently he was a very joyful tough guy. <laughs> and that actually comes out in the Zen tradition because... The transmission occurred, the, 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 all the students were assembled for a Dharma talk and they're waiting for this learned Dharma talk and the Buddha held up a flower and all the, all the students are kind of staring at him thinking, what, has he found his inner hippie? I hope he didn't break Vinaya by picking that flower and when is he going to start talking? And in the whole audience, only Mahakasapa, and the Chinese translates as cracked a smile. It's like his whole face cracked open with the smile when he, when he saw that flower. Oh, I'll send you some photos when I get home. Yeah, it'd be interesting. And then the Buddha saw the smile and he said, you're the only one who's recognised the, the Dharma. And he got the transmission. So it's got, he's cusped both. He's, he's this fierce, uncompromising macho ascetic and he's got this joy about him. It's one of the things that makes him so, so interesting. Actually, when you're speaking about joy here, are you meaning the same joy that you talk about with rapture as the fourth factor of awakening? And I, I think that this isn't a rapture that comes before joy it's not um, it's not rapture the, the party word is sata s long a t a pleasure, joy it's just apparently a standard word for joy it's not a technical term like rapture it's just joy pleasure so Always be mindful of the body in such a way that a pleasurable connection with it is evident. The verb translated here as not abandon is vijahati, which can also mean to give up. In other words, to not give up. So even when 
you go through periods where you, you forget the body or you cannot feel any joy associated with it, still make this relationship central to your practice. Is something learn learn to recognise what disconnects you from the body and the joy associated with the body. What gets in the way of the pleasure? Learn to recognise that when it's not there. Also, similarly, vijja uh, vijja hati can be taken as to dismiss. So, do not dismiss the role of the body in your awakening. Do not think that you've somehow transcended it. So, the Buddha, the, the Buddha gives Mahakasapa this very brief teaching which contains an enormous amount. But he makes it clear the role of the body is absolutely central and within that the role of pleasure is absolutely central. Um, I was reminded of, of this. Um, I do retreats with Kit Lachlan, who's my bodywork guru, and when he's teaching, he demonstrates a posture. And he's, as he does it, he makes these strange sounds. Like he goes, ah, that feels great. And kind of ties himself into some impossible knot. There's, ah, fantastic. That feels just fantastic. <laughs> I, I used to look at this and I think, you know, this guy, is, he's just laying it on. You know, he's trying to encourage us because we try anything like that. It's excruciatingly painful. And at some point I realised, actually, it's the truth. He actually does feel this pleasure. And I, and I realised, as I've come to know him, I've realised this is a man who is constantly feeling pleasure from the body. It's just his normal state. Because he fully inhabits it. And therefore, it's pleasurable. Patrick, you know, we do that when we do our stretches in the morning. Also, when we do a heavy massage, for example, it's sometimes quite painful. Mm -hmm. It feels really pleasurable yeah. at the same time. So yeah, I, I, know, I know it's like physically painful, but it's pleasurable in terms of mentally somehow. Like it's mm. somehow very satisfying. It's like when you get a really deep massage and it really hurts, but it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what would you say that is... You know, would you say that's like I described it, dukkha in the body and sukha in the like pleasurable sensations, pleasurable uh, retina in the mind? Quite, quite possibly, but it's basically, I mean, to me, body work is very largely the task of finding pleasure and ease in the body. Mm. So if I'm doing body work, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and it has to do with the relationship with the habitual tension and the relaxing into it. And that has to do with the quality of the awareness. So let's say, let's say the example of massage. Getting a deep massage, it's painful but pleasurable. Well, I find as soon as I start to resist, it's just painful. But if I'm not resisting, I'm surrendering to it. Yet there's a painful quality, but there's a deeper pleasure. And I find the same thing in, in the stretching, in the body work. And this is why, you know, the, the standard instruction that you get is, for me, is find the tight line, breathe and relax. And it's, it's about putting, 
putting the body in, in a particular form and then relaxing the awareness into it. Uh, and if there's a relaxation and a sensitivity of the awareness, first of all, the sensation becomes clear. We can actually hear what the body is saying and not get it mixed up with the perception. And by relaxing into it, the pleasure which is available emerges. And with that, the body stretches out. And it, it gives way, it surrenders, it, let, it lets go. It recognises the absence of threat. And in that recognition, it relaxes. But again, the function of pain, of course, is to recognise threat. Mm. It's like um, when, I was, when I was a chassis therapist, you know, there used to be a difference between pleasurable pain and painful pain. Yeah. And uh, you know, I know I'd be going in somewhere and you could see from the response of the individual I was massaging, I could feel it. It was painful pain. It wasn't right to go in there. And if you're feeling it, you're feeling the tension, the resistance. Well, I was feeling the tension, but I was also feeling resistance. Yeah. But it was a healthy resistance. It was the body's body's response in saying, this is painful because it's uh, pain is the response of the body for danger. Like, if you go in yeah. more, it's going to cause harm. Yeah. Pain is the, the reason why we have... Pain is a um, protective mechanism. Yeah, definitely. And... and and for practical purposes, you've always got to be able to distinguish between these two. Yeah. Uh, certainly, in, in it, people, sometimes people make them, people who are too keen in adopting the right posture don't recognise that they have the underlying tension unconscious, and so the body is tight. Pain comes up, and the and the, um, in people cause damage. So it's about it's always about the quality of the awareness, and if you need to back off. You know I need to back off. And that's what you do. And you back off, particularly in the stretching, you recognise a danger signal. This, again, is the language the body is speaking. And so you just back off just a little bit. Just enough. And then relax. So it's like finding the right point at which to relax is absolutely central, and that requires the sensitivity of the awareness. If you find the right point, the relaxation will occur. The body will drop its defence mechanism and just do what it naturally can do. So Kassapa must have become an expert at that. Yes, I would say so. I suspect he would have been a good masseur. Pleasure and pain, like what you were doing. A grimace is pleasure and pain. There's also, it can be a fierce joy. You know, mm. you can be fiercely joyful, and and there's a you know, I suppose in our current um, culture, you could think of a, an evangelist, right? Uh, you know, like the, the culture of now, someone who is very evangelical about spreading the word, can be very fiercely joyful and really, really having a good time whilst being extremely fierce. So. <clears throat> Fierceness doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing or an unpleasant no. thing or a painful, angry thing. Footy players. Yes. Mm. We, need, we need say no more. <laughs> so this, this work of tracking the body is foundational, not in the sense that we do it first, 
and then move on to something more esoteric, but foundational in the sense that the floor is foundational. So here we are on the floor, and it's not that we're going to at some point start floating above it. Well, you might, but the rest of us, it's unlikely. Actually, I I met a, a monk in Thailand who taught metta meditation and he claimed that one, one, one day he was sitting with his eyes closed radiating metta and he started to develop a headache and the headache progressed and he noticed, noticed that the headache was strangely located only at the top of the head <laughs> and he opened his eyes and he realised he had floated up and was pressing against the ceiling <laughs> and the spell was broken and he fell to the floor <laughs> I have to admit I didn't believe a word that he said. (laughs) Well, I was a bit suspicious of this particular monk. Um, So I can be working with the chitta, with the mind, in very subtle ways, but when I'm doing it, where am I doing it? Here. Um, When am I doing it? Now. In this body. Uh, So there's a groundedness to the relationship to the body. Take, for example, thinking. It's the world of difference between thinking of the future, knowing, sensing that I'm doing it here and now, versus thinking of the future when I'm actually doing it in the future. It's It's a world of difference between the two. So the body provides this here-now groundedness to our experience, which is completely foundational. Let's, let's take the whole project of meditating. Let's say that I'm told what you have to do is sit down and watch the breathing, this being a not uncommon instruction. Now, I hear this through and as concept. So I've got a concept of the job that I'm supposed to do. Um, First of all, so I have to sit down and follow my breathing. Okay, that's the job. First of all, the I that has to sit down and follow the breathing is a product of concept. There's someone who inhabits this body quite mysteriously who now has to attend to some aspect of this body, the breathing. So I, I'm the one who kind of more or less floats around this body, reach out for my familiar world, which is the world of concept, and where breathing intrudes only as an occasional visitor. I speak from experience in this case. And from that world... I have to make contact with the breathing and then stay with it over a period of time. It's bloody hard work. I know from experience. It's it's quite difficult. But what if I simply allow the body to be sensed? It's already speaking to me. There's already sensation. What if I simply allowed a sensing myself to sense this body. Um, 
And this sensing includes the movements within the body that we call breathing. So this is a whole different project. This is the project of, first of all, blocking our conceptual preoccupations, dropping the preoccupations that block intimacy with body. It's the concepts that are getting in the way, including the concept of, I'm supposed to be sitting here meditating. That too gets in the way. And it comes about through relaxing tension. Because tension represents the basic way of separating from the body. Uh, Or looked at from the other way, the body withdrawing because it's closed in on itself. And the only messages coming out are danger, 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 don't, don't, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. So the way in is through intimacy. Intimacy requires relaxation. And when there is intimacy, breathing appears. And so does everything else, for that matter. And intimacy cannot be forced. Uh, It comes about uh, through relaxation into tension. Find the tension and relax into it. Um, tension is resistance and resistance is fueled by fear and rejection so the practice of finding the clinging finding the tension the holding and relaxing into it dissolves that um, sense of paranoia essentially and the clinging that's associated with it and this leads to intimacy and this whole relationship to body for example establishing a meditation posture um, we have to learn to do it from the inside out what we normally do is we do it from the outside in. I have a, a concept, an image of what the body should look like and I then try to force the body into fitting that image to conform to it. So for example, the uh, one obvious example, I'm told I should not move. So I force myself to be still. And this very force increases tension in the body and it increases a sense of alienation from the body. So I actually find myself complaining about it. My body won't do what I want it to do. So here's me and there's the body. And they're obviously separated. So what we want is to create a posture from the inside out Um, feeling our way into sensation and the ease that's available um, when we that's available or that's characteristic of a body that's fully inhabited by awareness in other words mindfulness immersed in body so the way in is through feeling and relaxation and finding the sensation and a sense of ease and of balance from inside 
and then making adjustments from there, not thinking about what it looks like. Not looking at it from the outside, but feeling it from the inside. And uh, the whole role of the, the bodywork that we've been playing with in the morning, it's not something that we do to aid the meditation. It is meditation. This is really a fundamental point. We bring the same sensitivity and the same awareness to these movements as we do to the formal sitting meditation practice. It's not something that we do before the first meditation period. It's something that we do before the first sitting period. Yes, but it's not what we do before the first meditation period. It is a meditation. And the more it becomes, the more we feel it as a meditation, the more we find awareness starts to actually spread out and inhabit the body. And when that happens, the body oh, relaxes and everything flows from that. Okay. So is, is that any different than uh, what you mean when you say uh, when you set the first thing you do is establish a posture? Yeah, establishing the posture is part of this whole process. It's like sometimes I, I like to ask students, when does the sitting period begin? Uh, in my early days, when I did Zen, we had these elaborate rituals of the bells, and you could always time the exact moment that the sitting period began. And it was like when that final bell hit. Because at that, and the rule was, from that point you can't move. They'd have three bells to begin a period with X number of session, seconds between each bell. And the first two bells, that period, was the time you could kind of get yourself settled. The third one goes, that's it. No more movement. So I had this sense of that's when the sitting period begins. Mm -hmm. These days, for me, the sitting period begins the moment I begin to sit down. Because from that moment onwards, I'm constructing a posture. By the time I've, I've done it, I am already meditating. There's nothing to begin. I've already started. And it's quite a natural and seamless uh, flow. And similarly, the moving meditation begins as soon as I start to move out of the posture. I'm already doing the moving meditation. Any other questions or comments? I have a, a dilemma. Patrick, or it comes up for me um, in the context of what you're talking about, the meditation. So I often experience pain, pain you know, painful sensations. But if I, as I was saying the other night, go into those sensations with awareness, then that's a very productive process. That, that is the process as far as I'm concerned mm -hmm. and sometimes I have a, a, just a question in my mind it really came up for me this afternoon with my knees a lot of pain in my knees mm -hmm. I have that you know, damage condition in that. Mm -hmm. and I just really was a question you know will I go on with this and go into this mm -hmm. or am I damaging mm -hmm. People can damage them. Yeah, especially knees. Have damaged them by 
This is what I think Mal's getting at. Uh, if, um, if there's injury or the threat of injury, then it's ludicrous to go through the pain. And that's why, as a practical matter, you've got, a meditator's got to learn to distinguish between the two. As a rough rule of thumb, be really careful about knees. Um, because they're easy to damage. And the pain that we feel in the knee, in most cases, uh, if you're sitting cross-legged, is because if if you're sitting cross-legged, the pain you feel in the knee, in most cases, is because of inadequate um, flexibility in the pelvis, in the hip, and in the ankle. So if I if I'm sitting cross-legged, and I've got pain in the knee, this is referred pain. And it may be my, uh, uh, that I'm not actually addressing where the, the, the stiffness actually is, that I can't feel it. It's, it's vanished. It's so deep, it's completely absent. So in practice, you've got to be particularly careful about knees, and especially if there is, in fact, already an injury. You've got to be particularly careful. I've got an injury here in the left knee, and I'm very, very cautious with it. Uh, but... So, so there's always got to be that care. If there's an injury, mm-hmm. you've got to be really careful. And in practical terms, you've got to be learn when the sensation is telling you back off, yes. or when the sensation is an invitation to keep going. Yes. And how to make that decision, you, you you develop over a period of time. The first lesson I got in this was when I was doing my first three month retreat. At Mahasi Centre, and we sit for an hour, which was hard for me. And the, and it got to the point where the last ten minutes of every sitting was really painful in the knees, or well, was it the ankles or both? Anyway, it was really painful. Uh, actually, I think yeah, mostly, especially in the left knee. And but I would religiously not move until the period ended and just note pain. And then one day. Instead of pain arising, bliss arose. The, the legs felt blissful. And I thought, that's it, I've got it. Yum, yum, yum. And so I just happily sit there. And the retreat ended. And, you know, running around, organising my way out of Burma, fly to Bangkok, find a hotel. And the first time I sat down to meditate, as soon as I crossed my legs, <laughs> it was excruciating. <laughs> and I definitely damaged something. But it was covered over with the bliss of samadhi. 
Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Do you think that you had damaged something, or, or was the difference all the running around and everything you did in the meantime? All I was doing was just normal movements. It was normal movement, so I don't see why something caused damage. I suspect it was, I just pushed it too far. But all the danger signals of the body were had been obliterated by the power of the Samadhi. Right. That convinced me there was no problem. False message. So it can be really tricky. So in practice, you've got to be very, very careful. And this, the, 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 the um, so you've got to pick your ground, yes. uh, where you choose to to stay, and also the, the thing about the whole thing about backing off is important. Uh, if the awareness is clear enough, you can move forward to a position where you're getting a sensation, and the and the language what you're being told is back off. You back off just enough and then stay there. But how much is just enough? At what point do you do you hear that message correctly? So yes. it's not automatic. You've got to be there's a whole there's a sensitivity that you have to cultivate around this. I think there's there's an art to it and I um I, mean, I haven't sat cross legged for years. Hmm. But I've been sitting a lot in this retreat and getting a lot of the time without any pain at all. Mm. Less pain than I've had for years, actually. And I think I developed, you know, there's a reason why I've developed a problem with my knees. And in a way, those things are coming out in the meditation, mm. often in relation to sensation in my knees. Mm. But I think it's been a really productive process, actually. Mm. And I, I think my knees are improving. Mm. <laughs> You know, through this process of doing all this cross-legged sitting. Yeah. And but I'm doing it differently. Mm-hmm. By? I'm coming from a different place in, in emotionally. Mm. Yeah. So the, the emotion attached to the sensation is important? Well, I think the... I think factoring the damage was all of this sort of over-determined kind of over-effortful mm. and, and everything that, you know... Associated with that. To that, yeah. you know. Yeah, so it's all part of the package. Yeah, yeah I find, and we talked about this before, how the basic model is dependent arising, which is multidimensional. Yes. And the thing is to find a way in. Yes. And once you're in, then... Uh, everything starts to open up. And different people have different ways in, but once in, different people will find themselves heading along different trajectories. Yeah. And certainly, the in terms of body-mind connection, the, the in, what we will call the emotional aspect of sensation is really important. Well, that, because the body locks in certain patterns, and these can be associated with deeply held emotions, Plus, the quality of effort is always really important, yeah. and the too much effort smothers the sensitivity that you need for this kind of work. Yeah. I have a question mm. <clears throat> about the um, body pleasure and finding a way in. I mean, it may, it's probably conditioning, but. You know, most body pleasure that I can recall in my life has to do with things like massages or that activity, which is a none I don't do anymore. Um, 
and I, it's hard to find a way in to pleasurable sensations in the body. Mm. Um, <clears throat> pain's really obvious, but yeah. can you suggest any ways to notice or find pleasurable sensation in the body uh, without a visiting matter? Mm. Is there anything pleasant about sitting there now? Uh, no. Nothing at all? No. <laughs> when you step out and look up at the night sky, is there anything pleasant there? Uh, the seeing. Mm. pleasant. And that's part of body. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. So the, the, the pleasure of, of the environment can kind of filter into the body if we let it. It's a very good book by Hugh um, Hansen called Hardwiring Happiness. And it's all about noticing, uh, noticing pleasure, noticing joy, how to cultivate that. It's exactly what Patrick's talking about. It's like we tend to is the neurologist, he's a psychologist, and he's talking about how we have a mental bias. We tend to look for pain and, and, and fear, uh, look for things that are dangerous, and we have to uh, instead of that we need to look for things that are enjoyable, pleasurable. And I remember hearing once um, someone talk about a key to jhanas, for example, mm. was to notice something pleasant about your meditation sit. Mm. Like if you're breathing, to notice something pleasant about the breathing. And then as you notice that, it gets stronger and stronger and it starts to develop your concentration. So it's about it's taking in the good, mm. Mm. focusing on the good, focusing on the pleasant, even if it's just a <coughs> a minimal thing in the distance. The more you focus on it, the more you can see it. So it's fun. But I mean, Rick Hans talks about that. He's a, he's a Buddhist, but it's But can I recommend you start enjoying the, the place, the environment, and the situation of being here? No particular stress, no, nothing particular you have to do. It's quite you know, interesting place, quite beautiful. Really Weird good, weather. Really good showers here. Nice warm shower, they're great. Yeah. I find um, I find my meditation very pleasurable. Yeah. Very pleasurable. Especially if I'm in sitting strongly. Yes, and then down. Wonderful. Showers are nice. And and sitting in the same room as Buddha is nice. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's nice. Yeah. So it's it's basically it's like learning to re-tune re the radar. Because mm. if the radar is used to seeking out danger and pain, then you've got to kind of try, try the pleasure of this. And it's not necessarily in the fifth sense of touch. Mm. It could be more in seeing, hearing, smelling, minding, overall Vedana, not necessarily touch sensation. Mm -hmm. So, but it can f start to filter in into there.
I once um, was sitting quite a lot and I read Archan Sumedho's book and he said something about welcoming dukkha and something really clicked. It's like not understanding dukkha but welcoming dukkha. Mm. And that was pretty amazing for me. Mm. Mm. You said something, Patrick, about um, the Hindu resistance or something mm. like that in relation to physical tension. But it applies to everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Is the process in the mm. And letting go is interesting because it's not doing something. It's ceasing doing what we habitually do. So I can't let go in the sense of I'll just do letting go. It's actually kind of waiting. There's a certain quality of waiting and at some point I stop doing what I normally do. And that's the letting go. Does it come back to that not being afraid of pleasure? Yeah, we're going to get to that in not, not too far from here. We're going to get to that. We're going to have a talk about that oh, in the not too distant future. You mentioned it already, didn't you? Oh. Yeah, but I'm going to talk about it more. Why is the sutra called um, Jiva? Oh, yeah, because, because um, um, Kasipa had a, ro- a robe that he had got from home because he had ordained himself. And the Buddha had this old rag robe that he got from, you know, sewing together from a charnel ground. And when the Buddha is giving Kasapa his ascetic practice, his practices, he said, and take this robe. Use this robe. Mm. And, and Kasapa said, oh, we know you need a robe, so take mine. So they swap robes. And it's the only recorded instance of the Buddha giving his robe to someone. And this was taken up in the Zen tradition that the, re- the reception of the robe is a sign of the transmission. Mm-hmm. And in Zen, they have the story that he received the robe and the bowl. And of course, in the Pali tradition, he did receive the bowl. And you remember when that was? When the Buddha died, word was sent to Mahakasapa, and he came as fast as he could from the forest. But the Buddha died before he got there. Mm-hmm. And all the lay people gathered around to try to burn his body, but the Devas wouldn't let the fires start because Kasapa hadn't turned up. So Kasapa turns up, circumambulated the pyre, bowed to the Buddha, and it spontaneously bursts into flames. And you can see the traditional paintings of Kasapa bowing to the lying down Buddha and the pyre and the flames. So then Kasapa collected the ashes in the bowl. And he distributed, he was the one who distributed the ashes, but he kept the bowl. And of course, just complete the story, he didn't actually die. As an old man, when his life was naturally coming to an end, he entered the mountain, and the mountain opened up, and he walked inside, and he sat down, and the mountain closed up. When the next Buddha comes, the mountain will open. He'll come out with the bowl and the robe and offer it to the next Buddha. That's Yes, it would be good to witness that encounter <laughs> and to question Kasapa about his grimace. <laughs> okay, thank you very much.